Well, in 2002, there were a couple of businessmen in the Philadelphia area that were kicking around some different business ideas. And one of them suggested, why don't we start a discount store? But here's the unique factor in this. I want it to be a discount store that's a little bit of an upgrade, a little bit nicer than maybe a lot of the dollar stores that are out there. And as those two businessmen unpacked this idea, they arrived at a pretty simple mission, a pretty simple focus, and a pretty simple purpose. We are going to sell stuff that is under five bucks. That's it. We're going to sell items that are under five bucks. And here we are about 20 years later, and now Five Below has grown to be in something like 30 plus states, and Five Below has something like a 1,000 stores, and there are multiple Five Below stores right here in the Capital Region. And I'm curious this morning, how many of you have ever shopped at a Five Below? Let's see a show of hands. You can drop a comment online for those that are joining us that way. Yeah, that's the majority of us. Most of us have probably darkened the door of a Five Below. I know in the Saxon household, especially for our two younger daughters, Five Below has been an absolute favorite place to spend allowance money. Well, I should say it was a favorite place to spend allowance money because you see about two years ago, the unthinkable happened, the unconscionable. Five Below, the store whose name tells you we're going to sell items under five bucks, about two years ago started selling items that were six, seven, eight, nine, even $10 a pop. And my younger two daughters were absolutely livid both at the challenge of trying to stretch their dollars in this new expensive environment, and also at the sheer nerve of Five Below to sell $10 items and not even have the decency to change their name. <laughs> well, this phenomenon is called mission drift. And mission drift happens when an organization starts out with a clear purpose, a clear goal, a clear mission, but somehow, gradually, over the course of time, things begin to shift, things begin to drift, and before you know it, that organization is chasing after something altogether different than when it first began. This happens in businesses, this happens with education, this happens with hospitals, hey, this even happens with churches. And I don't have to tell you that mission drift is something that not only happens to organizations, it also happens in our lives as individuals. I mean, who among us can say, I have never lost sight of what's most important or drifted from my focus or drifted from my purpose? No, it just seems to be part of the human experience that we tend to lose sight of our main purpose, our main focus, and that which is most important. And this can be damaging when it happens in many different areas of life, but in no area of your life is it more destructive to experience mission drift than in your life as a Christ follower. Imagine, if you will, this morning, if we had someone come in here and interview every single person present and every person that is joining us online, and they were to be asked, what is at the heart of Christianity? What is the most important aspect of your faith? What is at the core? What's the mission, the focus, the ultimate purpose of the Christian faith? I believe in our responses, far from being unified and having a consistent answer, the answers would be all over the place. Some people would say, well, the heart of Christianity surely is teaching good morals and morality. 
Others would say, no, it's all about brotherly love and philanthropy and doing good deeds. Others would say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. It's all about good theology. Others would say, no, 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 the church is really all about community and building relationships. Still others would say, no, it's all about practical wisdom for living your best life here, like raising great kids or having a great marriage. And hear me today, as important as each of those aspects of our faith may be, they are not, hear me, not what is most important. What is at the heart of our faith, what is most important about Christianity is knowing and loving the Lord Jesus Christ, period. But we tend to lose sight of that if we're being honest with ourselves. Over the course of time, we kind of have mission drift. We shift and we drift, and we can get bogged down in all these secondary and tertiary matters. And hey, God in his wisdom knows that about us, and that is why he gave us the book of Colossians. Colossians is this excellent book in the New Testament that is going to help us recalibrate on Christ. It's going to help us refocus on Christ. It's going to help us keep the main thing the main thing. And I believe it shines a brilliant spotlight squarely where it belongs on the Lord Jesus Christ. And over the next 10 weeks, we want to invite you to join with us as we explore this small powerhouse of a book that I believe as Pastor Rex says, will cause us to treasure Christ above everything else. So please stay with us next 10 weeks. It is going to be an awesome Christ-centered study through a powerful book. And we're going to jump into today's passage in chapter one in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to ask you for some permission here. So I'm going to ask for permission if I can give just a little bit of background about the book of Colossians, because we're going to be in it for 10 weeks. And believe me, this is brief, but I think it'll help us kind of have our bearings as we study this book over the next 10 weeks. So the question I have for you is, can I have permission to give you just a little background about the book of Colossians? Will that be all right this morning? Okay. I was going to do it anyway, but I appreciate you being so agreeable. We're going to have a graphic on the screen that basically just has four different angles of the book of Colossians, and this is going to go really quickly, but I believe it's really going to set the stage. So as you're looking up here on the screen, you should see a who, when, and where, and then eventually we'll look at the why of the book of Colossians. So without any further ado, let's jump right in and learn a little bit about the book of Colossians. First, you'll notice who. Who was this book written by and who were the recipients? Well, internally in the book of Colossians, it's very clear that this book was written by the apostle Paul with the help of Timothy. And I'm describing this as being a letter that was written to Paul's grandchild because the church in Colossae was not a church that was planted by the apostle Paul. If you're familiar with the book of Acts or the life of Paul, you know that Paul preached the gospel and established churches pretty much everywhere he went. Well, in Colossae, the church that was planted there, it was not planted by Paul, but rather planted by Epaphras, which was sort of a disciple of the Apostle Paul. And that's why we are thinking of in terms of Paul writing this letter to his spiritual grandchild, if you will. Next, a little bit about the timing of this. And just to distill a lot of information, I think it's sufficient to say scholars are somewhat divided on the, the date of the book of Colossians when it was written. We do know it was written when the Apostle Paul was in prison, 
But the problem is he got locked up kind of a lot, so we're not 100% sure which time he was in prison when he wrote this. But the general scholarship is that the book of Colossians was written around AD 60 to AD 62, most likely when Paul was in prison in Rome. How about the where? A little information about the city of Colossae. Well, Colossae, by the first century when this book was written, it was a city in decline. It was an earthquake-prone city. In fact, it was ultimately destroyed uh, by an earthquake after the time of Paul. And it was also flanked by two more dynamic, flourishing, prosperous cities. So it was kind of a city that was declining in importance and influence. And that's a little bit about the where. Finally, the why. I think this is important if you're a student of the Bible to understand this, that when you read a letter from Paul or a letter from Peter or a letter from John, they don't just write with no purpose or impetus. They're always writing for a specific reason. They're wanting to teach something or address problems in the church or encourage people. There's always a why for the books in the Bible. And the why for the book of Colossians is simply this. The church in Colossae was being faced with sort of an unspecified false teaching that was sort of this hodgepodge of all these different ideas. And the problem was, at the end of the day, this false teaching, while we're not quite sure what it was, it ultimately resulted in demoting, diminishing, and de-emphasizing Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior and all-sufficient one. And so, in response to that and to proclaim truth and to tear down lies and error, Paul, with the help of Timothy, wrote the little book of Colossians. All right, show of hands, are you still with me as we dive into today's passage? A few of you are, most of you are not. That's a little troubling, but we're going to roll with it anyways. We're going to pick up in Colossians chapter 1, really with verse 13, and we're really only going to be in verses 13 and 14 today. They're going to serve as a springboard for us so Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, a short verse, but one that is pregnant with meaning and significance. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, describing God the Father, it says, he has rescued us. What is he rescued us from? He's rescued us, it says, from the domain of darkness and delivered us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Verse 13, God has rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. No doubt over the past few weeks, you've seen those horrific images and videos coming out of Afghanistan. As the Taliban has ousted the previous government there, millions of people have found themselves in a new reality where their land is absolutely ruled by tyranny and oppression, despair, doom, and darkness. And you've no doubt seen those images of people just swarming to that airport in Kabul, hoping to be rescued and to board these cargo planes that were stuffed with passengers so that they can be delivered from this dark, doomed, damned country and transferred into new lands where there was light and liberty and life. And in much peril, you've seen airplane after airplane over the past few weeks take off from that airport and do just that, transfer those that were in a land of darkness to a beautiful, hopeful, 
new land with possibilities, life and liberty. And I believe that physical deliverance, that physical rescue really serves as a fine picture of what the Apostle Paul is describing in verse 13 of what God has done for us spiritually. You see, God has delivered us too, if we're in Christ, from a doomed and damned way of living and brought us into a new and glorious kingdom where there is light and life and liberty. Again, in verse 13, God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But do you ever stop and wonder how God does that exactly? I mean, those that were fortunate enough to get out of Afghanistan and tragically, not everyone that wanted to leave was able to escape, but those that were able to escape that new reality, that domain of darkness, they were rescued, they were delivered by the instrument of a cargo plane. They got on that plane and when they were in that plane, they were safe because that plane took them out of one reality and brought them into a new reality. But of course, God doesn't use a cargo plane to save us. So what exactly is God's instrument, his vehicle, his method for rescuing us? Now we see that clearly in verses 13 and verse 14. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now, God didn't use cargo planes to save and rescue us. He sent his one and only son and all of those that are in Christ, we have been rescued from the true domain of darkness, the spiritual domain of darkness, and brought into the glorious kingdom of his son. Unlike the airplanes and cobble that took off from the earth and soared gloriously into the heavens, rescuing those on board, in stark contrast, Christ leaves the glories and beauty and privilege of heaven, and he, in great humility, descends to planet earth and takes on flesh. He lives a perfect, sinless life of unbroken obedience to the Father, and eventually he goes and dies on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the instrument, the vehicle, the means by which we've been transferred from the domain of darkness, brought into the kingdom of light, and we have now, if we're in Christ, redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now, just about every Christian I know would agree with the statement, Jesus died to rescue us from sin. In fact, I don't know if I can think of a single Christ follower that would disagree with that statement. I believe each and every believer that I know would say Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins. But I fear for far too many of us, while we may have the right answer, we don't really have a clear understanding of what all that means and how that works. Most people in conversations I've noticed seem murky at best when we start thinking about what exactly is going on at the cross. It's almost as if most Christians are back in high school and they're given a math problem and they know how to give the right answer to the math problem, but they're in big trouble when the teacher says, great, that's the correct answer. Now show me your work. For far too many of us, 
We can't show our work. Sure, we can utter the phrase, Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins, but we really don't understand much about what's going on there. And that's a problem because this isn't some, you know, side, obscure, theological matter. This is the heart of our faith. God says, Jesus says, rather, speaking of God, that God is looking for those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. And if we are going to give God the worship that he desires, that he accepts, we need to worship him in accordance with truth. So I believe spending time thinking about the cross, thinking about what's going on there will help us better understand, appreciate, worship, and adore the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for the remainder of our time, that's all I want to do this morning. I just want to take some time focusing on what's going on at Calvary. What exactly is Jesus accomplishing on the cross, and how has he rescued us from our sins? And we're going to do that by really considering two questions only for the rest of our time. The first question we'll get to in just a moment, it's what is sin? The second question that we'll get to after that is why is forgiveness necessary? So for the rest of our time together, we're just going to be thinking about, in light of Scripture, what is sin, and why was the cross, why was Jesus, why was the crucifixion necessary? So let's start by briefly understanding a little bit about the nature of sin. Probably the clearest and shortest explanation for sin in all of Scripture is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Sin, of course, is a word you're familiar with. We talk about it a lot in church. But if we had to give a working definition, I think many of us would sort of be struggling with that. So let's understand what it is Christ saved us from so we can better behold his glory and his majesty. First John chapter 3, verse 4, we get a great succinct definition of what sin is. First John 3, 4 says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, that's our word, practices lawlessness. And then here comes the definition. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is the breaking of God's laws. Sin is violating God's commands. And so if he tells me in his word to do something and I fail to do it, I've sinned. And if God tells me not to do something and I run on ahead and do it anyway, guess what? I have just sinned. You know, most of us would probably think, our, think of ourselves as being somewhat sinful, but there's a popular evangelism method that really helps people, myself included, understand just how sinful we are in the sight of God. And it's simply by comparing our lives to just a few of the Ten Commandments. Take, for instance, the command, do not lie. One of the Ten Commandments is to not bear false witness. We are not to lie but I'm willing to bet every single one of us in this room have told lies at some point in time in our lives. And if you say you don't, I'm probably thinking you're lying right now. Someone that lies is a liar. So all of us, if we have committed that sin in the sight of God, we are condemned and guilty. We are liars. Or what about the command not to steal? Do not steal. Maybe not everybody in this room has stolen something, but probably the majority of us have stolen something at some point in our lives, even if it was small in value. Well, if we've ever stolen anything in the sight of God, we're guilty of that sin because he told us not to do it, and we are a thief. Or how about the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment says, do not commit 
adultery. Surely not everyone in this room has committed adultery. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus raises that standard and says, if we've ever looked at somebody with lustful intent, then we have committed adultery in our heart. And so if you, like me, are guilty of those three sins at any point in your life in the sight of God, we are a sinner that is guilty. And in the sight of God, we are a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart. And that is just three of the Ten Commandments. So we're not looking so good if you are anything like me. I think both our eyeballs and scripture bear witness to this fact, but all of humanity is sinful. Everybody except the Lord Jesus Christ has been guilty of sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, you get some pretty clear, unequivocal language. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands or seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So what is sin? Sin is the breaking of God's laws, the violating of God's commands. And in the sight of God, the entirety of the world stands condemned and guilty because in our nature, our proclivity, and our decision-making, we have rebelled and broken God's laws. Sin is the breaking of God's laws. And according to scripture, and I believe my mirror and just what I see about human behavior around me, there can be no doubt that we are all guilty before God. But just because we're sinners, it doesn't necessarily mean we think that we need to be forgiven. I mean, sure, maybe we'll admit we're sinners, but Maybe we would just expect God to kind of look the other way or shrug his shoulders or just kind of hand wave everybody in. No big deal. Well, now that we've defined what sin is, let's spend the rest of our time considering why is forgiveness necessary? You ever thought about that? I mean, why is forgiveness necessary? Why can't God just sort of lower his standards and let us in even though we are sinful by nature and by virtue of the decisions that we make? Why is forgiveness necessary? necessary? The short answer to that is forgiveness is necessary because God is just. God is a just God. God describes himself as a just judge in whom there is no injustice. Look at Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. Deuteronomy 32 4 describing God as the rock. We read the rock. His work is perfect and all, not some or most or a few, all of God's ways are justice. Justice can be described as punishing the guilty and rewarding the innocent, and that describes the nature of God. God is just. There is no injustice in him. By nature, he sees to it that justice is administered and served. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 3, we read this. Sure, God is merciful. God is loving. But in Nahum 1, verse 3, while it acknowledges the Lord is, in fact, slow in anger, he's great in power. And catch this, the Lord will not. I think you could just as well think of that as cannot, will not leave the guilty unpunished. I'll say it again. God's word is clear, both in the Old and in the New Testament, God is a just judge. Now, in the church today, it's, it's oftentimes popular to hear a lot about God's grace and God's mercy 
We hear a lot about God's love. In fact, in Scripture, it does say God is love. We hear that message probably a pretty fair amount in most churches in the U.S., but we don't hear much about the justice of God. But it's important that we understand that while God is fully loving, fully merciful, and fully gracious, God is also full of justice. He is all of those things at the same time. God is a just God. It's kind of like, if you would, leave here today and you go to Stewart's on the way home, you're kind of hungry, and maybe you pick up a carton of Neapolitan ice cream. You know what Neapolitan ice cream is, right? It's got three flavors. What are the flavors in it? What's the first one? Vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. Okay, if you went to Stewart's, grabbed your ice cream, got home, and opened it up, and there was just chocolate and just vanilla, do you have Neapolitan ice cream? You do not. You have a much superior ice cream because strawberry ice cream is disgusting, <laughs> but you don't have Neapolitan ice cream. Uh, folks, it's the same way with the nature and the attributes of God. When we start trying to cherry pick the attributes we're comfortable with and ignore the ones we're not comfortable with, we get into a lot of trouble because we start misrepresenting God. When we start overemphasizing some attributes and denying others, we end up no longer with the one true God, but we end up with an idol. You know, if we ignore God's love, mercy, and grace, we end up portraying God as an ogre that's out to damn people. That's not the God of the Bible, but on the same hand, on the other hand, rather, if we only talk about the love and the mercy and the grace of God, and we have no room in our theology for the justice of God, you're also dealing with just a different kind of error. You're dealing with a sappy, sentimental grandpa in the sky, and God is not like that. God is just. In him, there is no injustice. God's justice must be satisfied, and therein lies the problem, folks. All of us by nature are guilty, condemned sinners in the sight of God, and God, by his nature, must punish sin. By the way, it's really good news that God is full of justice. Imagine, if you will, a courtroom, one of our courts, and imagine a, a criminal is about to be sentenced, okay? Imagine it's a gentleman that is guilty of murder. This person is about to be sentenced. They're standing before a judge. They're handcuffed. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, that there's eye testimony, uh, eyewitness testimony, that there is surveillance footage, that there is a confession and DNA evidence. There can be no question this man is guilty in a premeditated fashion. He took someone else's life. Let's just say he's standing before a judge, and right before the judge gives the sentence, he's found completely guilty. There can be no doubt. What would you think of a judge who said, sure, I will admit that you have murdered in cold blood, that you have choked out the life of a fellow human being made in the image of God, but you know what? I'm a merciful judge. I'm gracious. I'm loving. Take the handcuffs off of him. Let him go scot-free because I am a judge that is full of mercy. Now, what would you think of a judge like that? 
Wouldn't you want her, wouldn't you want her thrown off the bench? That judge has an obligation to administer justice. And if they are a just judge, they will see to it that that is exactly what happens. And God is the exact same way. He can't just shrug and let us go free. He's full of justice. All his ways are justice. And that lays out the great problem that we have before a just and holy God. But you might say, okay, I'll admit I'm a sinner. I've done some dirty stuff. I've done some evil deeds. I have sinned in the sight of God, but I've also done some really good things as well. I've, off, I've volunteered in certain capacities. I've, I've tried to be a good neighbor. I pick up after my dog when I walk the dog around the neighborhood. I even occasionally pick up a little piece of litter that's not even mine. I am doing some pretty good things. So doesn't that count for anything with God? I mean, sure, I'm a liar, I'm a thief, I'm an adulterer at heart, but God, I also do some good deeds. Doesn't that count for anything? Hear me, folks. Our evil deeds are not negated by our good deeds. Our good deeds are contaminated by our evil deeds. Imagine an unfaithful husband who shares his love with another woman. Imagine if every time he sent his mistress flowers, he also sent his wife flowers. And every time he sent a sweet text to his mistress, he sent a really sweet text to his wife. And he gave both of them his attention and his time, and he spent his money on them, and he shared his love with them romantically. Would you ever expect his wife to accept that because he does some good things for her? You would not because... Our good deeds do not negate our evil deeds. Rather, our evil deeds contaminate and defile our good deeds. Or take it back to the courtroom illustration with a judge. This happens occasionally. You know, somebody gets away with murder for 5, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, but something happens, some piece of evidence comes to light, or there's some confession or something, and someone gets caught 10, 15, 20 years after committing murder, well, when that person gets caught, say in that interim time of 20 years between when they committed the murder and when they got caught, they felt really bad. They felt kind of guilty. And so they did a lot of volunteering at soup kitchens. They tried to be generous with their money. They tried to pick up their neighbor's mail when they were out of town. Do you think a judge is going to take any of that into account? Of course not. It's immaterial. If the person has broken the law, justice must be served and justice must be administered. God's justice must be satisfied. And that is our problem. We need forgiveness because we're guilty before God. God doesn't just wave it off. He is just. All of his ways are justice. In him, there is no injustice. So you can see the dilemma that we have in the sight of God. How are we going to see to it that God's justice is satisfied and that we can be rescued from the penalty that we've really earned for ourselves? Well, folks, the answer to that is that's where the Lord Jesus Christ comes in. Jesus goes to the cross for you and for me. 
Jesus didn't just go there as some display of sentimentality. He didn't just go there to help us conceptualize his love, although that's seen plainly at the cross. Jesus is actually accomplishing something on the cross. He's doing something that changes our reality of being condemned in the sight of God. But it's important that we understand this. He's not at the cross just simply as, he's not like a, some high school boyfriend that says, babe, I love you so much, I'd be willing to burn myself for you. Or babe, I love you so much, I'm, I'd be willing to walk on coals for you. That's not what's going on at the cross. It's, it's not like that 80s song, I would walk 500 miles. You remember that Proclaimer song? I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more just to be the man who walks a thousand miles and falls down at your door. Folks, that's not what's happening at the cross. Christ is actually solving the riddle of how God's justice can be satisfied and how sinners can go free. Christ is actually accomplishing that in his body on the cross. And we see this probably most poetically and beautifully and clearly in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, interestingly written hundreds of years before Christ was even born, we read about the suffering of Jesus for the sins of others. Pay close attention to these words, please. This is the answer to the question, what is going on at the cross? Something's being accomplished through Christ. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, speaking of our Jesus, it says, He himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains. We regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. In other words, we thought he was suffering for his own sins, his own crimes. That's why we thought he was at the cross. But in reality, Jesus was pierced because of our transgressions, our sins. Remember, Jesus had a perfect life of obedience, unbroken obedience to the Father. He didn't need to die. Yes, the wages of sin are death, but Christ never sinned, and therefore he did not need to die, but he willingly went to suffer as a substitute in your place and mine. Christ was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him. We were healed by his wounds. And then it describes us. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him, that is Christ, for the iniquity of us all. You see, at the cross, Jesus took our punishment. Jesus paid our debt. God being a just God would have been right to save none of us because we are all guilty, but in his great love, he sent his son who took our place, who stood in the way for us, who was our substitute he suffered for me and for you. He was paying the penalty for our sins that would take an eternity for us to pay back if we were to die 
still in our sins and trespasses, and yet Christ at the cross is there, the innocent one taking our punishment, satisfying God's justice, and in doing so, creating a way for us to be rescued. At the cross, as it says in the Psalms, God's justice and his mercy kiss. And that is what is going on at the cross. Jesus is dying paying the penalty, paying it all for us, those sinners who cannot save ourselves. I'm going to close today with Colossians 1, 13 and 14 one more time, just to help us really soak in what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Through Christ, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. I wonder today if you could say in sincerity that you have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Have you had your sins forgiven? Have you called out on Christ? If you believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, have you done that? If so, if you've done that, Scripture says you're in the kingdom of his beloved son. Are you in Christ's kingdom? Have you been rescued? Or perhaps are you still in the domain of darkness, fumbling around, lost, condemned, needing rescue? Well, Jesus says that all who come to me, I will by no means cast out. But in the same way that those people had to flock to that airport in Kabul to be rescued, you must come to Christ because he and he alone is the one who forgives. Christ is the one who forgives. What domain are you in? The domain of darkness? Or are you in this different domain of liberty and light and life? The kingdom of God's beloved son. Call on Christ. He's the one who forgives. Let's pray. God, I simply ask right now that for all of those people here that are in you, Lord, that you would help us worship you in spirit and in truth, that as we sing Jesus paid it all, that you will move in our hearts and our souls and our minds and our psyche and our spirit and help us to see you as you are, more glorious than we have seen you before, Lord. Help us to have greater affection and trust and surrender to you. God, we thank you that through Christ you saved us from the domain of darkness. And now we are in the kingdom of your beloved son where there's forgiveness, hope, eternal life, the abundant life. But above all else, that is where our Lord Jesus Christ is. God, for anyone here that does not know you, and statistically, there are probably people here online and in this room that don't know you. God, I ask that you would give them a conviction and a knowledge that what I'm saying is true that we are sinful, that we deserve your judgment, your justice. But at the cross, your justice and your mercy kiss as Christ goes and takes the penalty that we deserve. Jesus paid it all. All that come to him, you will not cast out. 
God, I pray that you would bring about new life today for all eternity, that heaven might rejoice over it and that they would pray to receive you and they would come and find someone on our prayer team or our staff following today's service to share this good news with. God, we pray and ask you, would you move, would you move through the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ? We invite you into this place now in Christ's name. Christ, the one who forgives. Amen.